Amen. Thank you, Don. Well, happy Mother's Day again. Uh, we are in week two of a series called The Death of Shame. Shame is our topic matter. We just talked about last week how there are how there's good shame and bad shame. And the good shame is the kind that we should feel, the remorse, the regret when we had bad conduct or bad behavior. I mean, it's when a little kid kind of gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar, that kind of shame that we feel. Or perhaps we do something out in the world and we just feel that sense of, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. And we have that shame that hits us. And that's the good kind of shame. If we didn't feel that, we would say to somebody who's acting badly, have you no, right? And so, but then there's also the bad kind of shame. And the bad kind of shame is when we feel bad about our conduct, but then that turns and begins to tell us that we ourselves are bad. Not just that my behavior was unacceptable, that I'm, but that I myself am unacceptable. And so today what I'd like to do is to begin talking about how shame as a bad kind uh, begins to root itself and seed itself in our lives. When I was in seminary, I was uh, working at night shift as a security guard at a hospital in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. And I had lots of fun experiences there. One of the guys that I became good friends with, his name was Steve. Steve was a good bit older than me at the time, probably about my age now. And uh, Steve and I were good buddies, and we would hang out and talk about life and different things going on. And uh, Steve had a, uh, had a very storied past. Steve was um, in and out of bed with lots of women. Steve had been um, divorced and remarried, I believe, several different times. Um, Steve had, had just kind of lived life at its fullest and tried to get the most out of it that he could, and uh, that was kind of Steve's story. And so I shared the gospel with Steve over the course of some years and talked to him about forgiveness of sins, talked about what Jesus had done on the cross for him. And Steve, I felt like, was coming to a place, coming to a point of decision. In fact, I remember saying one night after he and I had, after Steve and I had talked, um, you know, day prior at work, I said, when I was leaving the house that night for night shift, I told my roommates, um, I said, hey guys, I really think that Steve is going to make a decision for Jesus Christ tonight. I um, just had that sense that that was what was going to happen. And so um, we're going to, there's lots of people all through scripture who kind of, who come to that point of decision where Jesus is presented to them um, and, and the forgiveness of sins is presented to them. One of those stories, it comes to us from John chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well. And that's what I, where I want to focus our time today. I know it says in your bulletin that I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 22, which I am going to go there. Um, but it also says that we're going to be in self-esteem. But that's what, Saturday night, that's what happens on Saturday night with the preachers. So sometimes we change where it was that we were planning on going. So today we're going to talk more about the subject of forgiveness, just kind of a follow-up to what we had talked about last week. Um, so our story comes from John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there. We'll be reading John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. This is the end of the story of the woman at the well. So I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Again, we stand week in and week out just to remind ourselves that this is where truth comes from. This is God's truth in written form, um, and it's what we want to build our lives on. Okay, John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 39 through 42. It's the end of the story of the woman at the well. Here we go. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, let's kind of walk through these verses together. We're going to work toward the end of the story, but I want to backtrack for just a second to get to the beginning of how all of this came about. So John chapter 4, we'll start at verse 5. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 
5, and it reads these words. It says, um, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Now, I have a map for you. Jesus had just gone through. Um, he was just in Jerusalem, and he said he wanted to travel to Galilee. And so Galilee is north. Um, it's up by the Sea of Galilee. So he's traveling from the south up to the north. But in order to get to um, <clears throat> Galilee, you can see there on our other map, he has to travel through this territory of Samaria. Samaria was a place that was a lot of people who had Jewish roots, but then also Greek. They were Jews, and they were Egyptians. They were Jews, and they were Romans. They were Jews, and they were Babylonians. They were kind of a mixed breed of people who lived in that particular territory. So Jesus had to pass through the territory of Samaria in order to make it up to Galilee. So this, um, this occasion, this, um, this story in Scripture comes when Jesus is interacting with a woman from that area, from Samaria. Verse 6, it says that Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, he was wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, I want to point out to you that there's a time stamp that's made here at the end of verse 6. It says that it was the sixth hour when Jesus meets with this woman at the well. This becomes important here in just a second. So let's kind of figure out what time of day we're talking about here, because they didn't tell time the way you and I tell time. For a Jewish person, even today, their new day starts at 6 p.m. on the clock. Doesn't matter what time zone you're in and whatever time zone that is, if it's Pacific time or it's Eastern Standard Time, when it hits 6 o'clock in your, in your time zone, that begins your new day as a Jewish person. That's 6 p.m. And this is the way that at twilight or at dusk, this is when the Jewish people look toward, hey, look, a new day is starting. For us, our new day starts when? What, what time of day? At mid middle of the night, right? At midnight. That's when our new day starts on our Greco-Roman clock and calendar. But for the Jewish person, their day starts at 6 p.m. That's why if you ever happen to be in Decatur on a Saturday night, their, sa their, their Sabbath begins on Saturday night at 6 o'clock. So if you're ever traveling through Decatur, you'll see a whole bunch of Jewish people with their little curly locks and their, uh, what do you call these doohickeys? Thank you. Yarmulke, is that right? All right, so the yarmulke uh, on their head, and they're, they're walking to church. And the reason why they're walking to church is because they're not allowed to drive their car on the Sabbath. So by the time church is over, they got to walk back home. So otherwise, they'd have to drive their car to church, leave it in the church parking lot, come back and get it on the end of the day on Sunday, right? So but anyhow, that's because that, that's when their Jewish day begins. Their Jewish day begins at 6 p.m. on Saturday or whichever day of the week it happens to be. Um, so the timestamp here is telling us that Jesus sits down by this well at the sixth hour. The sixth hour would be six hours after either 6 p.m., the start of the day, or 6 a.m., the middle of their day. You follow that, right? 12 midnight is the beginning of our day. 12 noon is the middle of our day. But for them, starting at 6 p.m. is the beginning. So the middle would be at 6 a.m. So it's either six hours after the beginning of the day. So that'd be midnight, right? Or it'd be six hours after 6 a.m., the middle of their day, which is going to put it at what time? Lunchtime. There you go. Noontime. And, it's, and so we know which it is. We know whether this is an a.m. or a p.m. reference, because if you look at verse 7, it says, <clears throat> um, no, I'm sorry, if you look at verse 6 again, it says that Jesus was wearied from his journey so that he sat down by this well. They would never have traveled at night. Jesus would never have been out there traveling in the middle of the night with his disciples. And so he's traveling during the middle of the day, and so he's wearied from all of his travel, and so he sits down by this well. Um, you say, Gordon, why do I need to know that? Well, look at verse 7. Next verse, look what happens next. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Friends, um, the women from town would journey out in the morning to this well, first light of day, to go get their water. And they needed this water to begin the chores of the day. So they would come out first light of the day, 
um, and they would draw water from the well. They would carry it back to their homes. That would be out enable them to begin washing laundry, cooking food, cooking breakfast, getting ready for dinner later that night. And so they'd be boiling the water. Um, and so water retrieval for the Jewish women uh, who lived in this area, for any of the women that lived in this area, was a morning task. You needed water to set for, to set up all the chores that you're going to be participating in for the rest of that day. And so for this woman to come out at noon, right, sixth, at the sixth hour, to come out at noon was highly irregular. Um, <clears throat> again, water retrieval was a morning task, and it was also a social experience. The women would come out together to come and get this water. They would talk about you know, the business of the day before or what was coming up that particular day. And so here's a woman, though, who slips out of town when nobody, after everybody else has come and gone to get her water. Um, let's see if we can find out why she does this. Skip forward to verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back here to me. He says, go get your husband. We're having a great conversation. Let's, how about the three of us have a conversation about this? Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. Verse 18, for you have five husbands, or you've had five husbands. And the man that you're with now, he's not even your husband. You're just shacking up together. Um, what you said is accurate. This is true. Um, so Jesus very lovingly, but also very directly, points out that this lady has uh, been in and out of bed with lots of men. She's married several, five of them um, and been divorced on each occasion. Um, and now she's living with another guy. Um, and all of this would be a reason, especially in Jesus' day with the, with the Pharisaism that they had, that this would all have been a reason for public disgrace. It would have been a reason for her to feel shame. And so because of that, you say, Gordon, I mean, how, how do you know that she felt ashamed? Well, because she's coming out to draw water from the well when none of the other women are coming out to draw water. She's making sure that they've all come and gone before she comes to get her water to set up her day. She doesn't want to be exposed to the sneers. She doesn't want to be exposed to the comments or the dirty looks from the other women in town. So instead of subjecting herself to all that, she just comes out to draw water later in the day, well after everyone else is finished with their water drawing task. Now skip forward to verse 25. Verse 25. This is toward the end of Jesus' conversation with this lady. Verse 25, it says, the woman said to Jesus, you know what, I know that the Messiah is coming. So Jesus had said several things to her, talked to her about uh, these different fellows that she's been with and told her all these different things, and taught her some things. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. So the conversation has now turned to the Messiah, who is called the Christ. The word Christ is from the Greek word Christos. It's a direct translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. So Messiah, Christ, exact same person that we're talking about here. When he comes, she says, he will tell us all things. Now note that for this gal, she believes that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, one of the distinctives of this Messiah will be that the Messiah will be all knowledgeable, that the Messiah will be able to tell people whatever it is that they've done. The Messiah will be all knowledgeable. The Messiah will be omniscient, we might say. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. And then the lady kind of looks at Jesus and she thinks to herself, he just told me everything that I've done in my life. He just met the distinctive, right? He just met the thing that we were looking for. One of the things we were looking for, that this Messiah would be able to tell all the things that somebody done. And so it dawns on her that 
he just said he was, and he, and he is. He just demonstrated to me that he is, that he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. She realizes that the Savior of the world's right in front of her, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, verse 29, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. There's the thing we're looking for, right? Somebody that told me all that I've ever done. Can this really be the Christ? And she concludes, you bet it is. And then people start streaming out from town to see the Lord Jesus, verse 39, back to what we read earlier. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. It's one of the things we've been looking for. And so they came out, they met Jesus for themselves, they believed. Now, I want you to note something, that the woman who didn't even want to be seen by the other women in town, who did wanted zero interaction with anybody, who was not interested in, 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 in seeing anybody, interacting with anybody, having conversations with anybody, who, who knew what was, gonna, who was, what was awaiting her if she did, that this same woman, for whom disgrace and public shame was something that she had to work around on a daily basis, right, and was confronted daily with that, that this woman goes back to town, total reckless abandon, and starts pulling people together wherever she can find them. And she's looking them in the eye, and she's telling them, you need to go meet this guy. You need to go see this guy. And she breaks into the women's bridge club, right? And she says, hey, you got to go meet this guy. I mean, remember, this is somebody who, who wouldn't even go out to get water with anybody. And she's, she's busting into wherever she can find people. She goes out to the grocery store. She finds some moms who are shopping for dinner, and she tells them about Jesus. And she goes to the dressmaker shop where all the hoity-toity people are. And she says, and you guys need to know about well, this person named Jesus that I just met. And she goes to the shoe store in town and anywhere where people are gathered, people that she's avoided eye contact with for decades now, people that she had gone to high school with that she hasn't spoken to because of the decisions that she's made. She went one way, they went another way. She didn't feel like she could ever interact with any of those people, again, because of the shame that she felt. She's just, she, and she probably, perhaps, even dropped in on her aged parents and said, Mom and Dad, I know I'm making a mess of my life. I know I've hurt our family name. I know I've hurt our reputation around town. But everything's changed. And they hadn't seen their daughter, perhaps, in many years. Maybe she stopped in at her brother's place of work or her uncle's house, unashamedly telling everyone, you gotta come see this guy. You gotta meet him. She went from feeling unacceptable and having low self-esteem and low self-worth to looking people in the eye again, confidently inviting them to come and meet the Lord Jesus. And not only that, not only that, but see this in the story, that the community embraced her the community accepted her. The community didn't dole out a whole bunch of shame. The community said, this is a wonderful thing that's happened to you. And they celebrated this with her. Look at verse 42. Folks are talking with her again. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said to us that we believe. <clears throat> for, um, for we, like you, they're talking to her, have now heard for ourselves, and we know, we agree that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, people are talking to her again. They're having conversations with her about life again. You say, Gordon, that's incredible. That's miraculous. I mean, how does this happen? How, how, how could this woman go from feeling public disgrace and shame and not wanting to interact with anybody or see anybody to all of a sudden breaking in on the bridge club, right? And meeting with people and seeing people in the eye. How can all of that happen? Um, and her family accepting her back. 
Um, well, it happened because of what the Lord Jesus did for her. Um, in a word, he forgave her. Forgiveness is what happened. Forgiveness is what turned everything around. Forgiveness is what set her free. Forgiveness is what wiped the slate clean and erased her past mistakes. Jesus pardoned her of all of her sin guilt. Jesus canceled her debt. You say, well, Gordon, how in the world did Jesus do that for her? Well, it started with the woman. She had to recognize that she had a sin problem. She had to recognize that there was something in her heart that wasn't right between her and God, and she had to see herself as a sinful person. And I, friends, frankly, I don't think that was all that difficult for her to do, uh, given the decisions that she had made in her life. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, people who think that they're perfect don't go to heaven. If you think you don't have a problem, then you're like the alcoholic who will just continue to be an alcoholic. Until you admit that you have a problem that you can't fix, and we call that in the Bible sin, then you're destined just to continue in your lot in life and to continue with the same way that things are going. Second, so she did this, she, it began by what she did for herself, is that she recognized she had a sin problem she couldn't fix, Right? And then the second way that Jesus did this for her was that in a little while, he would die on the cross, essentially taking the punishment upon himself that was meant for her, and that was meant for you, and that was meant for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus sin on the cross, somebody who knew no sin, somebody who had never experienced sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, if you're here today and like this woman at the well, you have a nagging feeling that you have a sin problem in your life and that you can't fix it, and you're coming to that realization like this lady at the well, and it's affecting your relationships, and it's telling you that you're no good or that your life doesn't matter or that you'll never be capable of enough or good enough and creating feelings of inadequacy and guilt in you from past mistakes. Friends, if that's you this morning, let me tell you that this lady with all of her baggage found deliverance from all of that. She found freedom from all of those bad decisions that she had made in the past, from shame, from guilt, and that can be yours as well. But it starts with admitting that you have a sin problem you cannot fix and then turning to the Lord Jesus to fix that problem for you by asking his forgiveness. Something for you to think about. I say, Gordon, I mean, that's great to hear, um, and, 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 uh, and that's good, but here's the thing is, I've already done that. Right? I'm already a Christian. I've, I know that I have a sin problem. I've asked Jesus to forgive me of that. But my problem is the shame and the guilt just keep popping up. How do I get rid of that? How do I get free of all of that? How can I get rid of shame and guilt? What difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let me see in the time I have remaining if we can answer that. You know, one thing we notice in the story of the woman at the well is her transformation from avoiding others, right? She's going out to the well at the middle of the day. She didn't want to see anybody. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She didn't want to interact with anybody. Um, and then all of a sudden, because her, she met with Jesus, things completely changed. Because she's been forgiven, she, things completely changed for her. And now she's um, talking to everybody in town. Now she's inviting everybody, and she's looking everybody in the eyeballs in town. And she's walking with full confidence and full assurance as a, her, uh, her self-identity and her worth in Christ. Um, so from being somebody who doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to interact, completely antisocial behavior, to being fully engaged with the community. 
And we said a few moments ago that it was the forgiveness that Jesus offered her that enabled all of that to be possible. But I want to point out one other factor, one other piece to this puzzle that enabled her to get free of her past. And that is that not only did Jesus offer her forgiveness of her sins, not only did Jesus forgive her of her sins, but she had to forgive herself. She had to forgive herself. Flip over with me to Matthew chapter 22. Um, This is the occasion where Jesus is um, confronted with some of the doctors of the law. This is right before he's going to end up on the cross. This is Thursday. Uh, These folks are trying to throw some questions at Jesus that might trip him up. And so um, one of the doctors of the law comes along, and he asks Jesus these words. He says, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, he Um, He says, what's the greatest commandment? Here's Jesus' response. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the greatest and first commandment. And then he says, but there's another one, the second greatest commandment, verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now in those, you've probably heard these verses before if you've been around church, or perhaps even if you haven't been around church, you've even heard some of these verses before, the two greatest commandments, Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I want to share, here's a slide here that shows these commands, right? Because in these two verses, it's commandment number one, commandment number two, right? So we've got two of the greatest commandments. And so, in the first of these, we see the love the Lord your God. That's, That's one of the commands that's in these, and this is the first, he says, and the greatest of all the commandments. Jesus says, but look, that's also to be followed up by another one, verse 39, and that is that we're to love the Lord our God. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there's actually not just two commands in these verses. There's actually three commands in these verses. And that third command is probably the most missed command in all of Scripture. And that command is for us to love ourselves. Do you see that? The Lord Jesus says that we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. A third command. Friends, at the heart of much of our faulty theology is the fact that we have yet to forgive ourselves. You know, many of us have interpreted that verse to say, love your neighbor and hate yourself. And we think that there's some sort of Christian humility involved and belittling ourselves, that there's some sort of Christian humility involved and paying some sort of penance and engaging in some sort of penance. And yet the Bible says, no, you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, <clears throat> Jesus forgives us. We need to be willing to, let our, to, to forgive ourselves. You say, but surely God has something more that he wants to require of me, that he's not willing to just let me off the hook, that he's not willing to just forgive me and let it all go. I mean, surely there's something more that God has for me to do. And if not, it doesn't matter because I'm not going to let myself off the hook that easy. I'm going to keep holding my feet to the fire until I feel like I've paid the price I needed to pay for my sins. You know, I went to the hospital that night at work, um, anticipating that my friend Steve might make a decision for the Lord Jesus. And I hadn't been on shift very long. I mean, the phone rang at the little station where I was. And it was Steve on the phone. And Steve was really upset. I thought, okay, here we go. Steve's thinking, right? The Lord's working on him. The conviction of the Holy Spirit's happening. And Steve began to talk about how um, he just felt unworthy. Steve began to talk about how he was undeserving of God's forgiveness. 
Lord, you just don't know all the terrible things I've done. And I said, you know what? Jesus does. And he died on the cross for you anyway. Well, about 30 minutes of this conversation on the phone, and I just kept anticipating Steve to say, okay, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. And Steve never did, and he hung up the phone. And a couple hours later, about the middle of the night, Steve came wheeled in on a stretcher into the emergency room, and uh, he had overdosed on pills. And, and the doctors were able to revive him. And in the coming weeks, um, he and I had more conversations. But in the coming weeks, Steve was never willing to offer Christ, um, for, was never willing to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Steve couldn't allow himself to be forgiven. You know, I wonder how many of us here today are feeling like Steve, bouncing from relationship to relationship because we don't view ourselves as worthy of love, holding at bay the affections of others, people perhaps very close to us, perhaps even our spouse, because we feel we have no right to enjoy life because of decisions we've made. And so through our self-loathing, we hope to pay back a debt. And we're locked into what A.W. Tozer calls perpetual penance. Perpetual penance. You know, Jesus taught that we're to forgive one another. That's what he said. Matthew chapter 5, verse like 12, 14, somewhere around there. After he tells us the sinner's prayer. He says, look, you're supposed to forgive one another. Forgive your brother of their debts to you. I wonder if we've been too narrow, though, in our application of that teaching. What if you are the person who needs to be forgiven? Does that not apply, Jesus' words about forgiveness, to you as well? Jesus said to forgive our enemies. What if by not forgiving yourself, you are your own worst enemy? Friends, anger and resentment are just as damaging when directed at yourself as they are when directed at other people. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for an inside look. Some of us here today, Lord, have perhaps been carrying around guilt and shame that's no longer intended for us to feel. It's been forgiven by you. Lord, we need to accept the forgiveness that you're offering by refusing to forgive ourselves. Lord, what are we saying about what your death on the cross accomplished? So Lord, as we come around this table today to be reminded of your shed blood and your broken body, remind us again that the price has been paid. The debt is paid in full. You said it is finished. Lord, if there's some piece of us that we're holding back, if there's some unwillingness in us to accept the love of others, to open our heart to them because we feel like we don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. Lord, let your outstretched arms on the cross be all, all the uh, argument that we need. God, we submit ourselves to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us, stir in us in these moments of quiet. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.